The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. We are very honoured to be joined here in the Spectator offices today by, uh, dare I say it, uh, an important American thinker. He's wincing. Patrick Deneen is a political theorist at the University of Notre Dame, and he is the author of Why Liberalism Failed, which was a very successful and influential book. And he is the author of a new book called Regime Change, a very dramatic title. Patrick, thank you for coming in. Welcome to London. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's, it's nice to be here, uh, even though I'm functioning on about you know six hours sleep uh, in the last 48 hours. So <laughs> extreme sleep deprivation. When did you land? We didn't discuss it. That was yesterday morning. That was yesterday morning. Oh, right. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Well, then we'll interrogate you fiercely. Uh, let's start with the obvious possibly boring question. Uh, what is the regime and why does it need to change? I guess I, so I guess the first thing to say is that this is my first um, conversation podcast interview about the book. It may be the last after, <laughs> after this, uh, but it may be the first of many. So I'm, all of these answers are really unpracticed. Uh, and uh, in that sense, it's perhaps fresh, uh, but also unrehearsed. Uh, when I speak of regime as in the title regime change, I really mean the kind of classical notion of a constitution that I think would be more familiar to a British audience than it would be perhaps to an American audience. When you speak of the constitution, it's, uh, it's, it's not a specific text as it is in the United States. It's not necessarily limited to the organization of the government and the offices of the government. That's certainly part of it. But when we speak of constitution in the United States, we tend to reduce it to what the, the document, the constitution of the United States says, and how that gets interpreted, particularly through the Supreme Court. And it becomes a very kind of limited, a fairly constrained and cramped understanding of constitution. And so I, I use the word regime primarily in the title, uh, but throughout the text I'm, I'm speaking of the idea of a constitution in the broadest sense, a way of life. Uh, how we constitute society broadly and how the deepest presuppositions of a, of, of a political order shape not just the politics and the government, but shape a way of life, shape um, how we inhabit the world. And the basic thesis is that we have been operating under a kind of constitution that I broadly describe as a liberal constitution, picking up on things that I discussed in the last book, and what's needed is not a change of literally like the American Constitution. You know, we don't have to overthrow the American Constitution. I think that's what some of my people who are anticipating the book are fearing that I'm like calling for a you know January sixth over and over again. But I'm talking about a kind of a, to understand new, newly and differently the animating principles of the of the political order, the social order, the economic order, in a kind of post-liberal direction. 
and, and specifically, I really emphasize the idea of a kind of mixed constitution, uh, which again should be familiar to much, probably much more familiar to a British audience where this tradition is, is longer uh, and deeper in lots of ways. And specifically, to rebalance something interestingly that is articulated by John Stuart Mill, who's kind of my bet noir. I, I really become yeah, I got really, that really, the, yeah, the, really yeah. Uh, hostile to uh, one of the great British thinkers, John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill, rightly in um, in some passages in On Liberty, says that the kind of the world is divided between two parties: the party of order uh, and tradition, and the party of progress and change and transformation. And on the one hand, Mill says you kind of need a balance between them. I don't dispute that. But he also says there's always going to be kind of a default. One is going to be one is going to predominate. And what Mill is really trying to do in the 19th century is to switch the default from a party of tradition, broadly speaking, a political order that is broadly speaking traditional, looks to the past as opposed to anticipates the future um, and future transformation. And wants to switch the default into in which the party of progress will predominate. And he talks about various ways this can be achieved in, in both on liberty as well as um, considerations in representative government. I, I really think that in some ways Mill is correct that there are two parties and one will predominate. And the regime change I am proposing is a, is a regime change in which the party of order and tradition actually comes to predominate. And the division of political society is one in which whether... It's a party of more tradition in terms of the economy or a party of more tradition in the social realm. The default of our society is more focused on how to achieve certain levels and degrees of stability and order as opposed to progress, transformation, and change. So that, that's broadly speaking. And I'm sorry, that was a long wind-up for a very, uh, I thought it was very, very minor con- point. That was very uh, concise, actually, considering how, how profound what we're talking about is. Possibly, I think, as far as you're concerned, the most harmful aspect of Mill is harm. Uh, the principle of harm, and that our society now and policy, government policies are formed purely on or debated purely in the context of whether they har- cause harm to individuals or not. That's something you think needs to be overturned. That's a key part of the way the regime works. Yeah, no, so it's actually kind of interesting right now because you actually have a debate, a kind of intramural debate within liberalism itself, and it's what we think of now today as the right and the left. And I assume that the configuration is somewhat similar uh, in in, in the UK as well, in in the following sense, that both parties are invoking the harm principle, but the the right, which tends to be still more libertarian and, and embraces Mill for this reason, they see Mill as a great hero, embraces the idea of that, um, in a sense, all should be permitted, especially in the political realm, in the, in the realm of discussion and free speech and expression, except that which is sort of creates or can be um, results in sorts of measurable forms of harms, particularly physical harm, um, maybe to some degree psychological harm, but they actually want to kind of minimize those sets of claims. So right now, on uh, you know all the debates going on about cancel culture, it's typically today the right um, that invokes the kind of million principle of free speech, open discourse and conversation and debate and so forth. The left is actually today, I think, just as million. They have a kind of expansive understanding of what constitutes harm, and harm is really anything that causes a kind of psychic or personal distress, especially as it relates to identity issues today, sexuality. You know, one's one's scriptive identities, gender, and so forth. 
Uh, and it becomes very subjective, of course, what constitutes harm. But nevertheless, you get enough people who say this subjectively constitutes harm. Once you have a mass of people saying that, then you can get a protest together and shut down some speaker, invoking million principles. But notice what, what really uh, ceases to really be operative in this debate is the question of what's good, what constitutes the good. Uh, and here I think a kind of older tradition of conservatism uh, that certainly you can tra track back through the classical and through the Christian era and coming up through contemporary times understands that the basis of human community, of course, has to be concerned about genuine harms. It's not oblivious to that. But that's a minimum. That's a kind of minimal standard. And that the, the more elevated standard is what constitutes the good, what constitutes the, the conditions of human flourishing. So it's not just merely to be left alone, whether an expansive understanding of harm or a more minimal understanding of harm, but what constitutes the conditions of a good and flourishing life. And I'll just, I'll just give you one sort of more, maybe a somewhat concrete example of this, uh, which is that I find the debate today on university campuses to be incredibly emaciated in on these issues, on these sets of issues. So you have the notional right invoking John Stuart Mill, the lion of liberalism, saying that what we need is com completely free and open speech, inquiry, discussion, and so forth. And you have the progressive left arguing that anything that constitutes this harm against our identity, against our sexual orientation, against our, uh, again, gender identification, and so forth, that this, this kind of speech should be constrained. And notice that in some ways what's really missing is what's the, how does our understanding of that which we explore that which we discuss, that which we endorse as a, as a community, as a community of inquiry, has to be guided toward and oriented toward the good, the human good, and even the transcendent good that should inform and orient and guide the, the aims, discussions, explorations, and the purpose of the university. When you walk around a kind of, you know, an ancient university, Cambridge or Oxford, or the ones that want to pretend to be ancient, like Princeton, Harvard, or Yale, and you just even look at the architecture, you see evidence that this is somehow, this, these institutions are visibly designed to orient you to the, to the high, to the transcendent, to the excellent, um, to, what, to what constitutes both human and even the divine aspirations that human beings have. That that kind of conversation as part of the aims and purposes of a university simply has dropped almost entirely away. And I think that's one consequence of a world that's adopted, in a sense, two sides of mill, and how, how the harm principle really acts as a kind of, um, a, a kind of, let's say, a minimum standard, which, once it's adopted as an exclusive standard, more or less eliminates considerations of the good as the basis of political, social, uh, educational order. Yes. This is a key theme in b both your books. I think in your last book you called you know, left liberalism, right liberalism. You said they're two sides of the same counterfeit coin. Uh, and is that, is, that, is that? Do you think that's why these sort of very emaciated debates on campuses and so on, is that why they're so irate? is because they are so close, essentially. They're really, they're, you know, it's the narcissism of small difference in a way. They're, they're arguing about something that is essentially the same, and it's really a civil war within modern liberalism. Yeah, that's, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before, and I think that's probably certainly the case, that 
you know, it's a claim over, in some ways, the same the same set of principles and whose principles are going to uh, are going to lead. Um, I also think, in some ways, that it's irate because you know, it's a kind of when you get to the end of an exhausted project, in a way, mm. everyone's in a really bad mood. Uh, that 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 uh, it's not just it's. It, I think you're right that it's, it is, in some ways, the the, the narcissism of small differences, uh, which appear to the participants as if they're large differences. Mm. But it's also, I think, a deeper dissatisfaction and maybe unar- unarticulated that the terms of the debate really aren't satisfying. Mm. Like, you know, if the, if the campus conservatives were to win and we just had, you know, free speech as far as the eye can see, would universities really be doing good? Mm. Would they really be places of, that are developing human excellence, human virtues, the constitutive features of a flourishing life? Or would they be kind of... You know, debating societies in which anything goes. And, yes. You know, I mean, and there's a value to that. There's a value to debating societies, but as an as an institutional form. And then let's write that large, as a social order and as a political order. Mm. Is it satisfying to say yeah, everything goes in in our political order, our social order, mm. or do we actually need um, kind of uh, you know forms of right? institutional organizations, social life, habits, culture, customs, traditions that actually um, draw on a kind of well and an inheritance of disciplines, of purposes, of goals, of of human telos, Mm. that is a kind of public utility. And regardless of your status and your standing, regardless of your income, regardless of your education, that public utility is available to everyone. Mm. And that's what really bothers me about the kinds of debates that are happening today in the liberal world. It's a kind of, it's an argument among elites about how to organize elite institutions, which of course then filter down to the broader society, that completely disregards the condition of ordinary people. Is it not important, though, given the situation in the society we're in, that the right liberal side of the argument wins? Because if you want to advance common good conservatism, uh, as you do, you're not going to be allowed to do that unless the free speech side of the argument wins. Uh, there's, there's a part of me that thinks that you can't get to a, thinking, a genuine thinking about common good conservatism until both liberalisms are destroyed. Right. <laughs> uh, and in the sense that um, I, I agree that you know, simply leaving the field to the progressive left is a, would be a huge mistake. But we're, I guess one of the things that I emphasize in this book and the last book is that we are attempting to defend ground that was only recently surrendered by the progressive left. Mm. In other words, what we call conservatism on campuses today used to be the position of the progressives. Mm. Right. Open free speech, right? So what, what was the condition? Uh, in the universities before the rise of John Stuart Mill. These were largely religious institutions. They largely had a kind of constrained understanding of what constituted the good. It was biblical. It was classical. Right? Uh, the, this was the, the disciplines in which were, were preeminent. Uh, you, everyone had to learn the classics as part of a university education. And the, the arguments that are introduced by Mill and others is that um, there should be no constraints. There should be no constraints on speech and exploration. This is what the university was. Now, once this is successful, then it turns out that the millions, the progressives in this case, move even further to the left, which is now this expansive understanding of what constitutes harm. And so that the liberal party becomes increasingly, we call it illiberal today. I would call it sort of 
you know, sort of ex more extreme form of liberal, which is we will we will we will force you to be liberal. Mm. <laughs> you yeah. will you will become liberal, uh, even at the point of the bayonet. And notice that what is invoked as the defense are the same arguments that Mill was making that preceded the development of the progressives. Mm. So. I think that a lot of what we what today passes as conservatism is basically occupying the ground that was abandoned by mm. by liberals in an earlier generation and calling it conservative. And this, I think, you identify as a very American type of conservatism, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this is a retreating battle. Yeah. This is. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm of two minds about this. Uh, yeah. There's a book from 1955. Um, by Louis Hartz, called The Liberal Tradition in America. He was a Harvard historian. And his thesis in that book is that America never developed a socialist tradition. And we could extend that, never, never developed a genuine conservative tradition because it was always a liberal country. Now, he was writing this as a sort of disappointed socialist, uh, that America never developed a socialist tradition because it was liberal, and he lamented this fact. And, and there are times when I I entertain this thesis of why America never has had a really genuine conservative tradition because it's always been a liberal country. It was settled essentially by, you know, politically as a liberal uh, nation, and that's been the only constitutive political philosophy. So the choices have, have have been, you know, between the very narrow spectrum of right liberalism and left liberalism. But at some level, I, I think this is this is incorrect, and in that what we what. What we now think of, what Louis Hartz interpreted as the liberal tradition of America, was actually very recent uh, in some ways, which is that there are, are some deep strands in the American tradition, uh, and certainly ones that draw on a whole set of European traditions. You know, people emigrating and bringing those traditions uh, to the United States, they, they draw on various Christian strands of more conservative thinking. They draw on the Republican tradition, which has, of course, roots in the in the British tradition, and deeper roots into the, you know, Machiavellian, Ciceronian, Aristotelian tradition. Uh, there's a wave of immigrants in the 1950s who are predominantly Catholic that bring a whole new array of um, thinking about politics uh, that has become, you know, kind of deeply seated in the American self-understanding. So at one level, yeah, at one level, your question sort of suggests isn't the problem of America in some ways that we, we don't have a, 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 anything other than a liberal tradition. And, and part, of, part of what I try to do in this, in this next book is to, is to contend that actually we do have resources for thinking about a common good conservative tradition. Yeah. They are strands, and they are strands that have been left kind of largely underdeployed and underexplored and underdeveloped especially as a consequence of the kind of alignment of political forces coming out of World War II, and the need especially to identify the United States as the ideological foe of both fascism and communism, and that the tradition that made the most sense to do that in the context of the United States was to amplify its liberalism. And that, that aspect of America has been in some ways over-amplified for about the last 50, 60, 70 years mm -hmm. and developed to the exclusion in many ways of these, of these other strands in our tradition. And I, and I think in some ways we're at the end of that period. We're at the end of that period in some ways literally, like you know, just, just the, the post-Cold War, right, post-World War II configuration. That's, that's coming to an end. That's visibly coming to an end. That's, that's 
part of also what's coming to the end across the West. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what the, the sort of the kind of expansion and disruption of our contemporary politics reflects. It's the end of the order, right, sometimes called the rules-based order of the, you know, of the liberal regime that was the default after World War II uh, and then as part of the Cold War. So I really do think that this is a kind of a moment both of, um, in some ways, peril, but also real opportunity. Is it also a, a, a perhaps uniquely, although I don't think um, entirely uniquely, an American problem of talking about class or thinking about class or or society forming along class lines because the mixed constitution you talk about uh, requires an understanding of class, does it not? And America has always been very uncomfortable about class because it's always put the emphasis on the individual uh, above the community. Right. So, in fact, yeah, this uh, part of the book is really to to try to talk about class in ways that are not merely inflected through a kind of Marxist lens. Right? Of course, so class thinking is, has tended to be predominated by the left uh, for you know, at, least, at least several decades. But interestingly, of course, the left has largely abandoned class-based analysis. And as the left has become a more elite, upper-class you know, formation in our in, you know, sort of advanced liberal democracies, it's really replaced class analysis with identity analysis. Um, and, I, and I think that there's, there's good reason for this, and there's, there are very interesting reasons for this, partly because I think it reflects the same thing that ultimately Marx had to acknowledge, which is the expectation that the lower classes, the working classes, would be the revolutionary force in society is constantly proven wrong. In other words, the left has a kind of, coming out of the Marxist tradition, has an assumption that a class-based analysis of politics is, of course, inevitable, unavoidable, but also desirable because when you're seeking a kind of transformation of the whole political, social, economic order, the revolutionary force of society will be the proletariat. This is pure Marxism 101. And Marx himself, in various points in his own philosophy and in letters, acknowledges how disappointed he is over and over again that the working class is actually not as revolutionary as he would like them to be. And in fact, actually, you know, sort of anticipating Lenin says, we're going to need elites to really lead the revolution. They can, they can show the way to the populace. But this is why I actually think this, is, this fact, um, two, two, two conclusions or two implications. First, because class analysis has been so dominated by Marxists, people on the right are very uncomfortable with class analysis. But two, we should recognize that Marx's admission, and the admission in some ways implicit admission of of where the left has gone, abandoning class analysis and identification, reflects a deeper truth, which is that, in fact, the the class-based nature of society and the empirical evidence that the people, ordinary people, working class people, tend to be more conservative actually is a very powerful source of political possibility on the right. Uh, that, that, that we have largely left, uh, you know, again, uh, under-analyzed under and under-explored, but which I think in many ways the, our current reconfiguration of politics is, is a deeper reflection of. Yes, and it is the right, isn't it, now that talks in class terms and uses what you call the politics of friend-enemy 
um, just as much as the left does. I, probably, I don't think I was the first to say. Probably, you're, sorry, you're not. But, <laughs> but it's in your it's in your book. But yeah, but um, but but it's it is the 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 populist movement in 2016 was very much described in terms of class warfare by the people who were leading it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and here again, I think it was an implicit recognition. This wasn't coming from the university world, right? I mean, the university world was desperate that this not become the, the, the topic of conversation. And uh, uh, in many ways, I think that the doubling down on wokeness and identity politics is really a response to this. It's really the effort to sort of, on the one hand, shroud the kind of elitist status of mm. those who occupy the elite positions in society with the patina of egalitarianism, even as the elite institutions go on to uh, continue to sort of attempt a kind of top-down control of the of the civilization, uh, but also to, to really um, to delegitimize the mm. class basis of what was happening. And th- this is why I think even, you know, you, you use the term, and we all use the term sort of almost unreflectively, to call it populist, mm. right? Which, of course, in certain circles might be seen as a kind of just either neutral or a positive description. Mm. But when you live in the university world, as I do, populist is about, you know, you know there's populist and then there's, you know, sort of, you know, wife abusers and you know populist is contends with that as like just a term of derision uh, and and having, having extremely negative connotations and notice that this that this label applies almost exclusively to when the demos hmm. what we might call democracy when the demos arrives at political decisions that are contrary to liberalism yes then it's populist so it's always populism versus democracy isn't it yeah well, it is in a sense, but it's the same thing. Yeah. But really, what they what tends to get called democracy again in the university world, if you replace the word democracy with liberalism, then it begins to make sense because you get you get arguments that say like you know Italy voted in an undemocratic leader, right? In the last election, Italy rejected democracy, right? And that makes no sense, right? In the election. Uh, but if a you terrifying replace, majority of people. Yeah, exactly. But if you replace it. the word democracy when it's used in that way with the word liberalism, then it makes entire sense. Yeah. Then, then it makes. Uh, so it is. A, it's an effort to shroud uh, mm. and to delegitimize the kind of class basis of what we're the kind of class realignment of what we're seeing in contemporary society. Let's talk a little bit more about 2016 because it, it's a sort of it, it's an important year. Uh, in some ways, or seem to be. And you talk about how... The, the, oh, we'll, we'll stick with this word populism, if you don't mind, just because it, it's useful. The, the populist, populism has been ill-led, I think you say, and that it had Trump. But I remember at the time there was a sort of talk that Trump could be a kind of Hegelian figure. He, he, may, he may be a dreadful narcissist and so on, uh, but he was representing these deeper currents. I think what we've seen since then, and, and with Brexit too is that being ill-led doesn't really work. And so the change we need has to be deeper than just a sort of a tribune who doesn't really understand what he's in charge of. Yeah, it's interesting to think of Trump and Hegel in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, so part of what motivated me to write the book, or at least the way in which I began framing the book, is just kind of looking, taking the pulse of what our politics are like today. And it probably is recognizable also in the UK, which is that you have these two kind of two sides, and it's on the one hand the populist side, on the other hand the kind of you know that lack of better word is elite uh, 
liberal, progressive. It's liberal across the board. It's kind of you know a combination of the anti-Trump classical liberals or conservatives, quote unquote, and the uh, and the more progressive forces that kind of predominate in universities and elite uh, media and so forth. And they, in their rhetoric and in I think in many ways their politics, if they could if they could achieve the ends that they sought, they would seek the elimination. Basically, though, you know, I'm not saying like, like to, to destroy and kill, just to you know, the 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 to re-educate and to essentially. Um, render largely inert these populist forces, mm. right? So to seek the kind of unconditional surrender in some ways. And I think the, true, the same is true on the, on the sort of the other side, which is that the populists want to drain the swamp, get rid of the elites, and kind of, you know, we'll just have people with pitchforks and torches uh, mm. ruling the society. And, you know, I think both of these reflect a kind of, you know, a, um, both a dangerous and unrealistic understanding of what, you know, what politics is. Um, you know, politics can be war, and sometimes civil war can result in unconditional surrender, but it's never very pleasant. It's never, uh, you know, it's, it, in fact, and, and in fact, even unconditional surrender, you still probably get uh, all kinds of, you know, rear guard movements and so forth. So I, so I really think that a more fruitful way forward is to think about how do we better align what elites are doing mm. to the deep dissatisfactions, uh, and, I, and I think the, the objectively bad condition mm. of, the, of the kind of working class, the average person in the United States, perhaps Great Britain, is, uh, UK as well. Um, and when I say measurable, I mean like really measurable, like, like mm. just the kinds of data that we have in the United States today about you know, decreasing life expectancy, uh, especially because of deaths, deaths of despair. Yeah. Um, you know, levels of depression, levels of uh, alienation, levels of um, illness, of social breakdown, and how much of this is really um, found and in increasingly not isolated, but really concentrated in in mm. in the kind of again the old work, kind of native working classes of, of American society. If if these people are not flourishing then you know, something should really be wrong, and that should be the first topic of discussion that we're having in our elite institutions. Mm. Right? So as a consequence, for example, of Trump's election in 2016, I always thought the topic above all topics that should be discussed on college campuses is what went wrong, how do we make it better, and in what ways were we implicated? In what ways have we been complicit, we the universities? right? Because we know they hate us. These people hate us. They don't think we're doing anything good in this site. It's not good if, if, if we're despised, if these institutions are despised. That was never, you know, that was really not ever a predominant conversation on campus. The predominant comp conversation on elite campuses was how do we stop, how do we overthrow, how do we forestall this kind of Trumpist thing. It mm. was all about stopping, overthrowing, overturning, um, resisting, uh, Trump. There was no real deep kind of, you know, sort of just internal reflection of, of what had happened. So, so all this is, and I'm sorry, this is... This no, is no, I'm just, I'm but, just, I'd like to pick up on this, because yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... I, I don't want to lose the thread of the question, okay, which go, was go, go, just, just that um, there needs to be a deeper alignment between sort of elites of society 
mm. and ordinary people of society. This can only happen at the level of the elite, though. Mm. Right. And I, I think this gets to your question, which is the upswell from kind of the bottom up was a kind of almost a, you know, a kind of a reaction from the immune system of the body politic. Mm. And the body politic didn't treat well the, you know, the disease. Mm. Uh, and so it's only being allowed to fester. And right now it looks like that what the elite classes would like to do is cover over the, the disease Mm. Uh, by sort of going back to the, the conditions that, pre, that existed before the, the, the sort of outbreak of this disease without actually treating the underlying conditions. Yes. Do you think, uh, I mean, I suppose what, what I'd say is, is the, the first part of your, you know, how they sort of responded, what went wrong. Uh, I mean, perhaps the problem is that assuming that it was wrong, in that I think there was a bit of uh, self-reflection. You know, the, the Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance's book, uh, was was sort of taken up by uh, you know praised by the New York Times. They made a film out of it on Netflix film. Um, there was a sort of sense that hang on, there is this uh, flyover country that we're ignoring, them. and it, there was a sort of moment of of doubt, um, but it didn't really translate it. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I, I think it was extremely momentary. Yeah, uh, it was in some ways curated. Uh, it, it just didn't penetrate deeply into the kind of, you know, how do we rethink what it is we're doing? Yeah. It really became, oh, these, you know, sort of these poor people and, you know, yeah, we feel bad about all that. But I, I, it, again, just, just a, maybe a little bit too anecdotal, but just um, overwhelmingly, it seemed to me, the, if there was a kind of maybe a, an initial response to say, okay, things are bad out there in the heartland, very quickly, there was a reassertion of a kind of, you know, let's let's put labels on these people. They're racists. They're sexist. They're homophobes. You know, we're going to put the labels on them that delegitimize. In particular, because it turned out a lot of these people supported Donald Trump, and if they could support Donald Trump, that means these people, in some ways, were just unacceptable to us. Yeah, yeah. I think you you you, you break up liberal to go back a bit. You break up progressivism, perhaps. Uh, into classical liberalism, progressive liberalism, liberalism, and Marxism. And your alternative, you know, what comes after, what changes, is common good conservatism. Do you think that the alternative to that alternative is that Marxism actually triumphs again uh, in in America? So that I actually, uh, uh, you referred to a part of the book uh, that for me is, in some ways, it's the most important part of the book, and I'm glad that you took notice of it, because I sort of think a lot of people will glance over it and look at these terms, and they won't be interested. They'll want to get to the juicy stuff about policy things, which which is less interesting to me in some <laughs> ways. I know we're like two blocks in Parliament, so I know that's what's going to be... Uh, there's always a desire to There's no more off-putting word than policy, yeah. I think. Yeah. But... Um, you know, I think first, you know, before you de- develop policy, you have to have an idea of what it is we're what it is we're seeking to achieve. So, part of the thesis of the book is really that if we are kind of arriving at a post-liberal moment, it's not guaranteed. Maybe liberalism reasserts itself and becomes legitimate again in the way it's been since the end of the you know, World War II and throughout the Cold War. But if really we're this was a kind of brief interregnum from basically the end of World War II until about 1989, if you think about it, right? It was pretty short. Right? It's about 45 years of undisputed liberalism as an undisputed political order. Right? It's almost like the day that Francis Fukuyama writes the end of history. 
liberal history ended. <laughs> you know, the, the, the claims of that article ended on that day, in a sense, because the, the idea somehow that, that liberalism itself was uncontestable really begins to start to shatter going into the 90s, and, and even you know, 10 years, you know, 2001, Fukuyama says, well, okay, well, maybe history hasn't ended after all. So if we're at the end of history in some ways, I'm sorry, we're at the end of liberalism, or liberal, end of liberalism as a kind of uncontested concept, which I take it is also the default of society being oriented to, toward the party of progress. And this is really, maybe this is the most contested or contestable thesis of the book, which is that I see liberalism as having been the political philosophy that changes the default from a society of, that's, that's focused especially on how do we create sufficient order and stability in a society so that there can be continuity across generations. And one can have the expectation that the way in which I lead my life and the way in which we order our social order, our political order, our economic order, can be largely um, passed on, largely intact to the next generation. So that there's a kind of, um, there's not the expectation that the next generation is going to have to deal with an entirely new situation. No. All right? And that the next generation is going to have to figure it out all on their own. Yes. And in fact, that they more or less antiquate the previous generation because of the nature of aggressive, transformative society. So the, uh, the older generation is simultaneously antiquated and literally no longer is responsible for passing anything on. So you have this kind of, kind of increasing hostility between the generations that I think we're all going through. We're all experiencing this. The, the sense yes. that the young haven't been given an inheritance, the sense that the old have been antiquated, it really is. And, 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 and because they know they're being antiquated, they have nothing to pass down. They, just, they live for the day. And everybody talks in generational warfare terms yes, now. Absolutely. Boomer And X. again, I, I think we have to see that this is a consequence of a progressive understanding of history in which everyone is relieved of any responsibility to the next generation, whether it's to the past or to the future. So I view liberalism in both of its forms, classical liberalism and progressive liberalism, as introducing the default of the party of progress being the predominant party. And the debate within liberalism is whether progress will be advanced primarily through a kind of economic set of arrangements and economic elites, which is the classical liberal understanding, or whether it will be advanced through a kind of social, in a social form, through a social set of elites, which is, again, I think reflects more the kind of status of progressive liberalism controlling the elite institutions today. If we are at the end of that history, in other words, the end of the assumption of a default that the party of progress, even if it's divided in, internally, if we're at the end of a period of time where the party of progress is the default, then interestingly, it seems to me we have two possibilities, at least that I can think of, that present themselves as let's just say the most live possibilities. There's other ones out there that, that might be possible. But the two are a, a new form of Marxism or, or socialism today, what, um, what the, I think especially a younger generation is increasingly attracted to, um, or a, far, a form of what I call common good conservatism. And what's interesting to me about both of these forms is they both claim that they represent a kind of the reassertion of the will of the people. They are both, in a, in a way, oriented toward the less toward the demands and expectations of the elites and much more oriented toward what are the needs of the people. 
And I think that there's going to be interesting contests. So interesting both um, a certain amount of sympathy between common good conservatism and Marxism. And that's reflected, for example, in Compact Magazine, my friend Saurabh Amari, Matt Schmitz, uh, where you have a kind of um, an effort to deploy both left and right critiques of liberalism. The kind of horseshoe theory, I think, is also unheard, maybe, is doing some of this as well, the kind of left and right critiques of market capitalism or liberal wokeness and so forth. But of course, they're going to contend with each other, ultimately. And they're going to contend with each other in part over whether or not the end is ultimately sort of revolution or order. Revolution or order. And I think, you know, in this sense, again, the evidence suggests that the demos tends to really want order. And they're willing to engage in a certain amount of revolution to get it. Right. But this was always the kind of interesting question mark about Marxist theory. I'm teaching Marx next week. I'm going to hit this point hard. So students, if you're listening, uh, which is at the end of Marx's history, there are points in which he suggests we sort of go back to this condition of complete, unchanging stability. There's this kind of very deeply kind of interesting conservative part of Marx. And then there are times when he almost reflexively reacts against that vision and says, no, no, it's going to be a constant ongoing revolution. There will always be something to, to rebel against. There will always be some condition of oppression that will have to be constantly, the revolution will be ceaseless. And I think this is a real tension within Marx's thought. This is a tension that I think, to the extent that Marxism has been historically appealing to the demos, it's because at least there's the suggestion that there will be a kind of order and stability that will sort of lie at the end of the rainbow. Do you fear that uh, just with, with the sort of horseshoe um, stuff that's going on with left and right, that uh, the consensus will be a, a new order that despises the past in, in different ways? And I mean, if you look at on the, on the left and sort of a new Marxism emerging the hatred of history and the destruction of the past is is firmly back on the agenda. It's been tried once, I know already, but this this time they 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 could do it. Yeah, no, this is why I think ultimately, uh, in a way, I said earlier, I'd like to sort of just you know, utterly defeat right liberalism and left liberalism uh, because, in some way, or defeat right liberalism in part because uh, the real object is ultimately to take on progressivism in both of its kind of Marxist and progressivist forms. I, I, begin, I think they begin to blend in a lot of ways, precisely because it, it, and this goes back to an earlier part of our conversation, the only real ground to contest um, the kind of progressivist, you know, the, the anti, you know, sort of iconoclasm, the, uh, the, the, the anti-traditional, uh, the hatred of the past, is by a firm embrace and indeed a kind of a deeper understanding of, of why it is we are people who care about the past and care about history. Mm-hmm. And I think this is precisely what a kind of common good conservatism would be capable of advancing, which is that, again, in that Burkean or Disraelian sense, this is a kind of, it's a, it's a, to use Burke's language, it's a deposit. It's a, you know, speaking about this in the midst of a bank runs and right but it's a it's a it's a secure deposit right it's a deposit that is secure and from which we can draw without depleting it right it's in some ways it's kind of constantly renewing uh, Social capital. it is a, it is a kind of capital that that renews itself 
And I think ultimately a kind of classical liberal understanding is not sufficient to articulating that because classical liberalism also is kind of deeply suspicious toward, toward the past. You know, it, 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 because the past is that which constrains the individual. Right? It constrains individual expression, it constrains individual self-making, it constrains you know, the idea that I can just make, make myself into what I wish to be. Mm-hmm. Right? So this, the, the, the idea that somehow the, the liberation of the individual, kind of the Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan vision, you know, the Ayn Randian vision, that's classical liberalism. Mm-hmm. And it's also hostile to a kind of deep preservation and a kind of social treasury that views the past, again, as this kind of deposit. Awesome. So, so, I, so I think that, um, in a way, the common good conservative position is really is its own, has to be in some ways in contestation with, with the, these three other traditions. But what neoliberalism got right, in a sense, was that um, you know, constraints of the past do impede economic growth. And so perhaps the, the, sort of the fate of capitalism is what we're really talking about here. So it's certainly part of it. Uh, now, you're, you're, in some ways, you're right to say that neoliberalism understood that the past cultural forms, cultural restraints can be a can restrain economic growth, and then a, then a discussion would be, what are the you know kind of the we'd have to evaluate what are the relative costs and benefits of a society that's willing for the sake of economic growth, which of course is a very rough measure of things, right? You know, it doesn't tell us whether or not the growth is good growth. You know, if it's just increasing the financialization of the economy without actually increasing the productivity of the economy, just measuring pure GDP. So, a, just growth in and of itself, right? Well, that, you know, none of us should just be in favor of growth. That means we'd be pro-cancer, right? That's that's you know, growth is not in itself necessarily good. So, what kind of economy do we want? And secondly. Is, is, is it not worth having the kind of debate in which an economy that is capable of growing without destroying, and indeed in some ways relying on the cultural, communal, uh, the, the, those kinds of, those forms of constraint that make, that, that ultimately an economy serves and exists I'm sorry, that an economy exists to serve, right? Um, that it's necessary to evaluate those kinds of questions as a part of thinking about what is the purpose and end of, of, of an economy. It can't just be the purpose and end of all, not just an economy, but the entire social and political order is just growth. And I do think that that has become the kind of neoliberal mantra in how we understand and evaluate all policy. Does it result in economic growth? Well, if, if it results in any form of growth, while destroying the conditions for broad-based class, you know, indifference to class, a kind of human flourishing, then this is, you know, then this is clearly a failing project. We've talked a lot about America, but liberalism is global and it's it's an empire in many ways. In many ways, because of America. Because of America. But looking away from America and other countries, do you think, you know, look at some countries in Europe, Africa. Um, and other parts of the world, there are other countries that are in a different phase of the liberal experiment and in a much more healthy and productive phase. And they are not at this sort of fag-end, angry age of um, post-liberalism that America is and Britain perhaps is as well. How do, you, how do you sort of tie that together with what's going on in our countries? 
So I, I'm not as familiar with you know parts of Africa, for example. I'm, I'm there. I think there are probably a lot of issues that we would you know we're not on those. Uh, we're not on the same level of uh, philosophic debate as regards those. Although although I do think that they're in danger of as as they've always been of essentially being, of course, the playthings of the either the liberal order or the the post liberal order in the form of or, or the whatever we want to call it, China as being a kind of alternative to the liberal order. Uh, but I think you're right that it is a kind of imperial project. I think that my read in many ways of, let's just say, the kind of European continent is that to the extent that the European continent reflects a kind of non-liberal set of institutions, you, know, you can think broadly of the sort of, in the economic terms, the kind of the, the, the social or what we call social democracy, broad, broad-based levels of, of welfare, broad-based um, forms of support for education, for example, something that's unthinkable in America, right? basically free university education, imagine. You, know, we, you, know, you're, you come out of college, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt uh, if you want to get a university education in America these days. So you have these, you know, these institutions and these practices that are often called liberal because we think of Europe as liberal, but I think you know, almost entirely are the result of what you know in a predecessor generation was called Christian democracy, was the inheritance of an older tradition, which was much more solidaristic, which, and, and I think this solidaristic understanding of society was deeply embedded in, you know, throughout these European nations. It's just kind of a legacy of Christendom, that, mm. that we understand ourselves not purely in individualistic terms, whether economically, whether socially, and that we develop the kinds of social institutions that have deep roots, right? It's kind of these, these forms of mutualism and, and corporatism uh, in which we understand that we are embedded in parts of social holes and, mm. and that we can't think of ourselves as sort of separate from those. And, and, and this is, I think, a, a distinctively continental self-understanding that is sometimes more difficult to find in Britain and the United States. But it is, it's suffused and I think it reflects, it's reflected in those institutions. But I do think that Europe, in a sense, has been increasingly colonized by a liberal ethos. So even, those in, even though those institutions are perpetuated, so it looks like it's you know, kind of a socialist society, um, there's, a, there's a liberal ethos that makes the, the, the sustenance and continuation of those institutions very difficult because you have now a kind of very individualistic ethos throughout the continent that is really undermining the capacity of these nations to continue and perpetuate these institutions, right? Whether it's certainly in the form of basically people no longer forming families, no longer having children. So one, one way you perpetuate these forms of social democracy is you actually have to have future generations to do so. And so what's being done, right, of course, is bringing in you know, large-scale immigration uh, in order to make up for the loss of population. And we're seeing the kind of social tensions and difficulties that one has when you sort of import a completely different civilization. Right? And I, I don't mean to just condemn a different civilization, but it's just the fact that it's just awfully difficult to sort of reconcile different civilizational bases uh, yeah. in the space of you know a couple of decades, yeah. uh, with the expectation that everything will continue in just the way that it's been. So you have um, you have this, I think, a kind of colonization of the liberal mindset, which is. I think, you know, deeply popularized through American media, through kind of the aspiration. Now, my wife is German. She grew up in Germany, you know, in kind of the same years I was growing up, 70s, 80s, and everything was American popular culture. 
right? It was all Westerns, it was all, uh, you know, kind of, you know, so you're almost importing this kind of Western frontier mentality into the heart of Europe. And, and it gets adopted. It gets adopted into the minds, to the, the way of thinking, uh, into these uh, more contemporary generations. So you have this kind of, you know, almost a sedimentation of, of different kinds of philosophical, metaphysical conditions and understandings that are overlaid on top of each other. And I think in some ways it's a, a, a bit of a race against time in, 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 in Europe more broadly, whether in some ways, a kind of recognition will arise that this liberal ethos is actually not ultimately going to sustain our the social political order that we have, or whether it will in some ways just get exhausted and you're just going to have the kind of deepening of the social dysfunction that we're increasingly seeing across Western Europe. Uh, Sigmund Freud, who is not everybody's favorite thinker, said um, that uh, America is the most grandiose experiment that's ever been tried, but I fear it's going to fail. Do you think that applies to the liberal experiment that we're talking about more broadly and more globally? I think I, I wrote a book along those lines. <laughs> um, I, but do you think it's, it's, what I'm saying is, do you think it's a uniquely American failure that the whole world is suffering from? Well, yeah, I mean, these are, these are big questions. Um, I, look, I, I think, broadly speaking, after World War II, America became, we all know this, America became the global hegemon. I mean, there was a competition between... Russia and the United States, and with the belief that in the offing was the question of whether the world would be communist or the world would be liberal. And communism proved to be, have a you know, limited staying power, mm. uh, and for good reason. And the presupposition right at, you know, at the end of the Cold War, 1989, uh, was that liberalism would become the dominant global universal order. And I think to an extent, it's not hubristic to say that this actually occurred uh, and has been occurring, uh, that, that this, the hegemonic nature of a global empire, and you can go back to Rome and look at the influence of Rome over the then world, you know, history bears out, and I think our recent history bears out, that global hegemons exert pow you know, powerful influence over the, you know, not, not the ultimate, not every particular of every other implicated country, but an awful lot who want to participate in the, the economy and in the social order and in the military security and want to enjoy the sort of fruits of victory that, that were the consequence of the end of World War II. So I do think um, America has exerted a very powerful sort of global influence in shaping the globe. And to the extent that we're now seeing a kind of shakiness of, of that it's often attributed to sort of the exhaustion of America's you know, resources or the decline, the kind of inevitable decline of a, of a hegemonic uh, to a kind of multipolar world, the rise of other powers. I, you know, I, I would put myself you know, out on the limb and say I think it's also due to the exhaustion of the liberal project itself, which, you know, to, just to use the, the terms from my previous book, it constantly draws down on a set of, of inherited resources whether it's literally the you know, sort of natural resources, but also the moral resources of a, of a predecessor tra tradition without ever replenishing them, uh, without ever sort of, you know, go back to that idea of social capital that regenerates, just drawing down on it uh, until, it's, you know, until the cupboard is bare. And I think that's, that's 
my read of our situation is that's kind of where we are at this point. And that it's hardened into an ideology. That yeah, and, and in fact, the, the less popular support that it has, the more it's kind of ideology that um, increasingly needs to be imposed reveals itself. Yeah. Finally, Patrick, I'd like to ask you, um, this word regime has become a sort of subversive word that people use, almost a sort of code word to sort of say, was your title a nod uh, to that, or did you... You're not allowed to say, I suppose, no, if, you, I, if it's a, if it's no, a it's subversive... I, I, so the word regime change became, uh, or the phrase regime change became quite um, c- common when speaking of uh, overturning Saddam Hussein during the, the second Gulf War. And so that the word regime took on a very negative connotation, right? That, that um, one changes a regime because a regime is illegitimate, right? So anything that's illegitimate gets described as a regime as opposed to a state or a nation. And in my, in my sort of political theory brain, regime is a much more neutral term uh, it's just, it, it describes, as I began by saying, it describes a kind of constitutional order writ large. So, so in some ways, I'm playing on, on both of these qualities. I'm saying, on the one hand, I would like to see a change of our, broadly speaking, our constitutional order, which I also think is illegitimate. But it will be replaced by a regime. If it is overthrown, if there is regime change, it will be replaced by a regime that I hope is legitimate. So I think the word regime, is, in the way that it's been used, is a bit loaded, and I want to kind of appeal to that. Um, but I also don't want to dismiss the idea that we're always living under a regime. We're always living under some kind of order, and we should just be aware and conscious of the way in which that order shapes who we are as human beings, how we interact with each other, our expectations from the world. You know, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, how we understand time, how we understand the nature of time, which is shaped by our regime. And what I would, part of what I would like to see, and I end the book on this, this argument, is a kind of reconstitution of the continuity of time that's reflected more broadly in the social and political order. I think we'll end it there, but uh, we're a long way from mission accomplished. We are. Uh, but it's uh, fascinating to talk to you, um, and thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Farose, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.